typology, as we learned last time, is basically where we look at events that actually happen in the Old Testament covenant that are fulfilled in Christ or they point to Christ in a certain way. Uh, last time we were together, we gave um, kind of a technical definition just because we wanted to make sure that every under, everyone understood where we were going to go as the series progressed. And so when we look at the technical definition of typology, uh, this is what we said. We said it is a person, office, place, institution, event, or thing in salvation history or something that happened in the Old Covenant that either anticipates shares correspondences with, escalates towards, or resolves itself in Jesus. So in other words, it is something that has already happened in scripture and it finds its fulfillment or it points to something in Christ. And so as we begin to go into the series, um, we will primarily focus on the type of typology that focuses on the atoning work of Christ. And so there are other typologies, some that we'll kind of dabble into tonight, but there are some typologies that do not specifically speak about the atoning work of Christ. Like for instance, tonight, what we'll do is we'll talk about some things that are broken and what Christ's work did to make them whole or to make them new or to fulfill them. And so we'll kind of hit some of those things tonight, but the vast majority of, of this series, we're going to focus on the mirror images between the Old Testament happenings and how they're fulfilled in the atoning work of Christ. Uh, tonight, we're going to begin uh, one of the segments where we talk about different events throughout the Old Testament that happened. Tonight, we'll talk about the events in the Garden of Eden. Uh, in other series, we may talk about the flood of Noah. Uh, then we'll move on to a different segment where we talk about different offices that uh, uh, point to typology in Christ, like the priest of the Old Testament. And then finally, what we're going to do is we're going to spend uh, a number of weeks talking about individuals throughout the Old Testament and how their lives or their actions are typified in Christ. And so we may speak of Joseph or Moses or whomever the case may be. But for tonight's purposes, we're going to focus on five or six elements or events that happen in the Garden of Eden. And although all of these events, as a matter of fact, I think there's only one event that specifically focuses on the atoning work of Jesus, what we're going to find is that most of these events, most of these happenings, they are going somewhere because of the work of Jesus. And I think you'll understand um, what I'm talking about once we get there. And so, for example, let's go ahead and jump into our notes. Number one, we're going to talk about the creation event found in Genesis chapters one and two. Uh, the opening verse of scripture reads this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, you probably understand from a cosmic perspective that in scripture, we have this event that is universal. There's a creation event, everything that we see, everything that's visible or even invisible elements all across the universe from Jupiter to centipedes, all of these happen in the creation event. 
What we also understand is that following the creation event, there was another event that happened, and it's where sin entered into the world. It broke creation. It broke humanity. Following this corruption of the creation, Christ came, and as a result of Christ's coming, we now anticipate a new creation. And so we have this narrative where we look from a very cosmic sense, and we have this understanding that the first creation is pointing to and anticipating a new creation. This is what Peter would say in his second book. This is what he says. He says, according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, the apostle John, as he's on the Isle of Patmos, he's receiving this revelation of Jesus Christ. He says this, he says, at one point I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven had passed away and the earth had passed away also. And so when we take a step back and we look at scripture, what we realize is that these two creation events really serve as bookends. The first two opening chapters of Genesis speak to the creation event where God created the heavens and the earth. In the latter two chapters of Revelation, what we see is where God is creating something new. And so in other words, what we have here is these two creation events. In the first creation event, it's a temporary existence. Everything that you see, everything that I see is temporal. It will pass away. The heavens and the earth will pass away. But this new creation near the end of the book of Revelation, this is going to be an eternal creation. It's going to be something that never passes away. We will live eternally in that state. Um, in the first creation narrative, um, things are corrupted. They're marred by sin. But in the next creation event, it will be incorruptible. There will be no opportunity for sin to enter in. Now, how do these relate to Christ? Well, they relate to Christ by this. Because the first creation event was compromised, we cannot have the second creation event without the work of Christ. He is the only one. He is the link that was missing for so long that has now come. And so for you and I, as we look at Scripture, we don't just look at Genesis 1 and 2 as theoretical, um, you know, mythological type of events that happen. We believe they were actual events that happen, but we don't believe they just stay there. We believe they're pointing to a new event that will happen in the future. And so as we begin to look at different events in Eden, uh, this is a type of event that we will look at in the creation uh, events. Number two in your notes is uh, the events of what happened in the garden. So when we take a step back, we see the Bible speak to this narrative about the creation events in a cosmic sense. But immediately following that, God narrows the focus of Scripture, and he begins to talk about a place in Eden. He planted a garden in a place called Eden. And so the focus of Scripture goes from something enormous and expanded, and it begins to narrow the focus. And so as we begin to talk about Eden, it's important to understand that Eden was a very unique type of place, 
Even in scripture, uh, the Lord gives certain parameters to Adam and Eve and certain methodology to how that they should tend to the garden to make sure that it is sustainable. Uh, we learn about the garden that there are certain types of trees in the garden, um, we'll get to later, but there are certain types of trees in the garden that you're not gonna see going down I-20. Uh, there, there are some interesting things that are happening in Eden, but the best way and the most important thing I wanna focus on when it comes to this garden in Eden is that this Eden almost served as a type of sanctuary for the Lord our God. It served as a sanctuary in the sense that humans were alive and active and God himself walked in the garden with them and they had an unimpeded relationship with God the Father. Genesis 3.8 says, and Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord their God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so there was this moment where in this type of garden sanctuary place where they, the people would fellowship with God is in Eden. Then when sin entered in, the people were separated. The, the sanctuary was compromised, if you will. And what we begin to realize is that the Garden of Eden, in a similar way to the creation event, the Garden of Eden is pointing to and anticipating a new type of Eden. Uh, later in the book of Revelation, we'll, we'll read here, uh, this is what John says. He says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This new Jerusalem is the place of God's dwelling. This is the sanctuary. This is kind of the new Eden that God is going to descend. And so uh, very in a similar way with a creation event, we have this sanctuary that God has given with unimpeded, uninterrupted, uncompromised fellowship and worship with our God. Sin compromises it and that no longer exists and then when Christ comes and does his work, now we anticipate that relationship again. We anticipate a new Eden. We anticipate a new sanctuary where we can worship God, where we can come and there's no interruption, there's no barriers in our relationship with God in this new Eden. Um, the third level of what we're going to talk about event-wise is what we call the tree of life. Now stay with me here. This is what scripture's doing. It's taking this creation event, which is massive. Scripture then begins to narrow and focus on a particular part of that creation in Eden. And then it gets very specific about something that is in Eden, which we call the tree of life. Listen to what Genesis 2 says. Out of the ground, the Lord God made, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. What do we know about this tree of life? What we know is that it is a tree that produces eternal life for people. There were two trees in the garden. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God forbid them to eat from. And then there was the tree of life. Adam and Eve did not eat from the tree of life. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
in an effort to protect God's creation, in an effort to protect his children, God removes Adam and, Adam and Eve from the tree of life, and I'll explain why. In essence, when they had compromised and they had sinned, they had disobeyed, they had rebelled against God, by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they allowed sin to enter not only them, but all of creation. At that moment, all of creation was broken and we were separated from God our Father. What God did as an act of mercy, we usually look at it as an act of discipline that God came in when he removed Adam and Eve, and though it was an act of discipline, it was probably more so an act of mercy because God in his goodness understood that Adam and Eve had allowed sin in, and if he would allow them access to the tree of life, they would have been perpetually stuck in their sin for all eternity. And so in God's goodness, he removes them from the situation, which we'll speak of in, in just a couple of minutes. But here is the takeaway from this typology of the tree of life. The disobedience of humans banned us from the tree of life in Eden, but the obedience of Christ offers us access to the tree of life in eternity. Listen to what John says. At the end of Revelation, again, you've got another bookend thing here working. This is what John says. He says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. And so we don't know what happened to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, we don't know if the flood, you know, there are some scholars that say, well, the flood, it, it came in and destroyed Eden and the tree of life was, was destroyed and God will create a new tree of life. We don't know if God went down and just plucked the tree out and put it in a new dimension waiting on the new creation. We don't know what God did with the tree of life, but this is what we do know. There will be a tree of life in the new Jerusalem. There will be a tree of life that perpetuates our eternal existence. And the incredible link in all of this is Jesus Christ's work on the cross. We now have access. We were banished from eternal life. We were banished from the tree of life. But because of the work of Christ, we now will have access to the tree of life. Jesus himself, he's talking to the great, you know, Nicodemus. And this is what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. And so through the work of cross, uh, uh, of the cross, we not only can look back at the events of the garden and the tree of life, but we can anticipate access to the tree of life and eternal life into the future. Number four in your notes, uh, the next event we want to talk about for a moment is what we call the first marriage. Uh, Genesis 2.24 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The takeaway from this is, again, another type of bookend. The first union, the first marriage relationship that we have here points to and it anticipates the last marriage. Listen to what John says in Revelation 19. 
He says, and the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this first union between Adam and Eve, it points to and it anticipates that there's coming not a first union or a 34th union, but there is coming a final union. And that union is not between one man and one woman, it's between Christ and his church. And so the work of Christ has allowed us to have access to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Furthermore, there are so many examples and so many teaching points that we can go off between the relationship between um, a husband and wife found in Genesis and Christ and his church found throughout the New Testament. Uh, There are so many correlations uh, between uh, the fact that marriage relationships should possess a very deep level of intimacy high levels of commitment, there should be a type of oneness, um, the order in relationships, a sacrificial love that, that is poured out of relationships. And so we see this marriage relationship in the New Testament, and it finds its fulfillment in Christ, in, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, and finds its fulfillment in Christ in the New. Now, all throughout uh, Old Testament scriptures, uh, there are times where God is speaking to Israel and he will um, allude to the fact that their relationship is, is kind of like a marriage relationship. You see this in the book of Exodus, most, most beautifully written by the prophet Hosea, who marries a woman who is given to adultery and perpetually um, uh, commits adultery against him and runs from him, but he continually brings her back home. He continually woos her. He continually pursues her. That is a picture of Christ and his love for the bride of Christ. Number five in your notes um, is what we call the garments. Now, this is going to be the event that happened in Eden that most speaks to our personal salvation. It speaks mostly to the atonement that Christ has made for us. Uh, Genesis 3.21 says this, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, what had happened after Adam and Eve sinned was that there was a blood sacrifice that was required to forgive and to cover their sin and their shame. So the takeaway here is this. The blood sacrifice required to cover Adam and Eve is a foreshadowing of the blood sacrifice of Christ to cover our sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, without the violent shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so even from the opening chapters of of the scripture, we see God take this command and we, we begin to feel the gravity of sin. So if I sin to be forgiven, to have my shame removed, something innocent has to die, and God paints this picture for us. And so as Adam and Eve are in the garden, not only is it a beautiful depiction of, of the covering of the shedding of blood, but it's also a picture of us as humans. Where are Adam and Eve when God is walking in the cool of the day, he can't find them. Where are they? They're hiding. Why are they hiding? Because they're so ashamed of their sin. 
They know that the holiness of God is coming. They know that something has changed within them. And so not only are they hiding, but they are weaving together fig leaves to cover their sin. It's a picture for us of us before a person comes to faith in Christ. Before we're Christians, we are working so hard to cover our own sin and our shame. We're working everything that we can do. Our hope is that, you know, if, if we do enough good things, maybe it will cover the bad things. And when we, you know, afterlife, we may meet God and he may say, well, you're good enough, come on in. This is exactly what Adam and Eve are doing. They're, they're working so hard, they possess a works mentality. And they say, if I can just cover my sin, if I can just cover my shame, then God will not look on it. But what we're reminded of in Scripture is that it is only through the shed blood of Jesus that we find forgiveness of our sin. Paul would say this. He would say, listen, uh, it's, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. The word grace, he's saying, it's, it's nothing you could weave together. You don't have enough fig leaves to cover the depth and the width of your shame and your sin. He says, it's by grace that you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that none should boast. And so what God is saying here in this moment is he's saying, listen, I clearly, I have, I have wide open 20-20 vision of your sin and your shame. And in addition to that, I see how hard you are working to cover that, but I need you to understand that there is never enough that you can do to gain the gift of eternal life. And so even in the opening chapters of scripture, we don't see God come to his people and say, you messed up pretty good here, what are you gonna do to repair it? The father looks on his children with pity and he says, I've got to fix this because nothing that they do is going to be sufficient for it. And so scripture says he goes and he sheds the blood of animals. He takes their skin and he covers not only their sin, but he covers their shame. What a beautiful picture of the work of Christ in us. And then finally, we come to the exile. Scripture says in Genesis chapter 3, that God, after all of this had taken place, that God drove out Adam and Eve. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which are a type of, of angelic host. He placed the cherubim, and he, uh, with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so again, here we see that banishment. We see God saying, I've got to put separation not only as a disciplinary action, but more so as an act of mercy. I am removing you from the temptation, and I am separating, I'm putting space, and putting distance between you. So we see this, but we also see the disciplinary side of it where God says, you're no longer back in the sacred space, which again gives us hope for what Christ has done, and it points to that time where we can come back in fellowship with God in unimpeded. There are, there are historical records that, that are beyond Christianity, even beyond Judaism, that, uh, you know, obviously cannot be verified. But there are allusions to um, how Adam and Eve may have lived out the rest of their lives. And there are some writings that indicate that 
Adam and Eve understanding the weightiness of what they had done, not only had they broken their fellowship with God, but they had broken it for all of creation and creation itself was now broken and it was now compromised. And there are these, uh, there are these writings that suggest that Adam and Eve, they understanding the weight and the shame and the embarrassment, the humiliation of what they had done that, you know, they basically lived out the rest of their years in, in dark caves, uh, barely able to look at one another because they know what they had done together in joint. And again, those things can't be verified, but I will say this, they understood something that we will never understand. They understood what it meant to walk with the Lord our God. They understood what it meant to see him walk in the cool of the day and to be able to visually lay eyes on him. And then they began to live in a new world where that was no longer possible. And the depth and the pressure, it's not, it cannot be verified, but it's not far reaching to believe that that's how these people ended up. And so what we take away from this in their exile is this idea that human sinfulness banished us from the first paradise, but Christ's sinlessness gives us access to the new paradise. What is the connection? Is there a connection between what was old and what was new? Yeah, there's a connection, but there's only one. It's in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is how he would say it. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And he would reemphasize him being the way by saying this, no one comes to the Father except through me. And this, my friends, in all of the events of Eden, we see the work of Christ as it anticipates our future hope in him. And it gives us great cause to rejoice. Amen. And so this wraps up our second session uh, revolving around typology. In our next session, we're going to dive a little bit further into the book of Genesis, and we hope that you'll join us for those sessions. Father, this evening, I thank you, God, for your people. I thank you for their hearts, and I want to thank you tonight, Father, for the work that you had foreplanned before the foundations of the earth. Knowing the depth of our brokenness, knowing that our hearts would go astray, you came for us even before it happened. And we give you thanks for that. Thank you for the book of Genesis. Thank you for all the scripture and revelation. But we thank you for the work of Christ in our lives. And we celebrate you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.